It's the 16th of January, 2016, and this is episode 278. This show is intended for informational and educational purposes only. Cryptocurrency is new, exciting, and empowering, but we're not experts, just obsessed companions walking the road towards a more peer-to-peer future. On today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin, we're hitting two hot topics in the Bitcoin news. First, we cover Peter Todd's double spend, what it meant, whether it matters, that sort of thing. Then, with scalability a hotter topic than ever, we talk about Bitcoin XT and Mike Hearn's rather dramatic exit stage left. Once again, I'm here with Stephanie Murphy and Andreas Antonopoulos. Enjoy the show. So guys, recently, last week, there was something interesting that happened that I think brings up some issues about... uh, Maybe about security, maybe about trusted third parties, and maybe about proposed improvements to Bitcoin. But what happened was Peter Todd, who's a Bitcoin developer, purposely committed a double spend attack against Coinbase. He put some Bitcoin, I guess, in Coinbase, sold it, and then redirected the Bitcoin payment to buy something else, which in his case was Reddit Gold for Jeremy Gardner. He did this with, uh, I guess, a tool that he wrote himself and did a successful double spend and then talked about it on social media. So some people were saying, oh, that's kind of a crap thing to do, you know, to do this double spend and then just talk about it publicly. But, you know, you could also say that he's highlighting something that someone could do. Now, why would they do it on Coinbase? Because Coinbase is essentially a a trusted third party, right? It's the thing that Bitcoin is not supposed to have. It's It's this uh, interface between the traditional banking system where you have to have all your information associated with every transaction and Bitcoin where you don't. Well, there's nothing special about Coinbase being a third party in this particular attack. This could have been an attack against any sort of service that will basically count zero confirmation transactions or accept zero confirmation transactions and then not check to see if they're properly confirmed. So I think. What Todd was trying to demonstrate is that zero confirmation transactions are not secure, which is a point he's been trying to make for two years now. And specifically in the case of Coinbase, I believe he had reached out to tell them about this potential weakness, and he decided to demonstrate it publicly after they didn't do anything to fix it. Uh, which you know is is a bit of a gray area. You know, the the rules for responsible security disclosure is you take the vulnerability that you discover first to the company or software coders, give them a heads up and give them sufficient time to fix it, and then if they don't fix it, you go public because there is essentially a duty to the broader community. And we've seen a lot of cases where that has happened, where there have been security flaws discovered by security researchers and experts whoever's software or company has that flaw doesn't address it to their satisfaction, so they go public with it after trying. It used to be the norm in security to only go to the vendor, manufacturer, company, or software organization that's behind the code. But the experience of security professionals was that companies wouldn't fix things. And so the general kind of rules of engagement in in terms of security vulnerability research have changed very effectively about a decade ago to what is called responsible disclosure. And that responsible disclosure means that you have a responsibility to both parties. You have a responsibility, first of all, to the vendor to give them a heads up. But if they don't do anything, you have a responsibility to the public to warn them. 
uh, you could argue that he was following responsible disclosure. It depends on how much time he gave Coinbase to fix this and whether they uh, made any effort to fix it. Really not the issue here. The bottom line is that in, in many cases, it's fairly easy to double spend transactions before they're confirmed. Right. But does anyone do that, especially for small amounts, right? Like, in my mind, the people who accept zero confirmation transactions are for small Bitcoin transactions, you know, a couple bucks worth of Bitcoin, something like that. If you're doing a, a huge exchange with Bitcoin, you're going to wait for three, six confirmations before you consider that sale final. Does anyone actually go to all the trouble to do a double spend for such small amounts? Well, it sort of depends on what you're talking about here, because I think that Coinbase's policy for quite a while now has been that it's zero confirmation on anything. And also, it's important to keep in mind, no, I, I don't it's, think not, so. it's not. It's, it's not? It's, no, it's, it's not. not. When you, no. when you, What's the amount then? That's a, let me try to find that out real quick. I think maybe they have a thing where if you're trusted or if you're verified in some way that they'll accept a small amount with zero confirmations. But uh, so but there's a there's a distinction here. You're talking about selling Bitcoin, and that isn't what Peter did. What Peter did was he used their merchant services. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Excuse me. Exactly. So so I, I think that when it comes to merchant stuff, they don't make you wait for confirmations. Yes, that's right. And of course, there are multiple ways to make you wait for confirmations. Like you could say, we've received your payment in 20 minutes, you'll have your product. Or you can do what it seems like they do, which is just kind of just say, all right, here's your product. But another interesting thing is because what he purchased was Reddit Gold, that's actually something that's reversible. Like if Reddit cared enough to go through and, you know, re and revoke that, they could. Another thing is, is that you guys are talking about security disclosure for things that are not known problems. This has been a known problem that they don't even consider a problem. It's just like a cost of doing business for them. BitPay does it too. It's not just Coinbase, right? Every single merchant service does this. And the reason they do this is because you cannot, under normal retail conditions, have a customer hang around for 10 minutes in order to get a confirmation. And in most cases, for the items that they can pick up and walk out of the store, the risk isn't worth doing that because you know you want to sell more products. It's exactly the same as coffee shops not requiring a signature on a credit card for amounts under $25, which is very, very common. I think the argument Peter Todd is making here it relates to what you said, Stephanie, which is why would anyone go to the trouble of doing a double spend for small amounts? And what Peter is trying to demonstrate is the trouble is a few hundred lines of Python that you can run easily, and it's not actually trouble. And that makes zero confirmations problematic. Because if there's zero effort to do it, then why not do it a lot, right? Uh, and if everybody did it, then we would have significant problems doing very basic retail spending but if everybody did it, it would increase the cost burden on payment processors like Coinbase and BitPay, and then they would change something in their system, right? Yes, what they would do is they would stop accepting zero confirmation, and the end result of that would be that face-to-face uh, -face retail transactions would, would involve standing around waiting for 10 minutes, and that's a very bad outcome. Retail transactions in the physical space aside... It seems like this is something that can totally be handled in a way that doesn't impact the user experience negatively for you know any sort of meaningful value, while also not kind of uh, doing dispensing of whatever it is that is being purchased 
on zero confirmations. I mean, like, it seems like that's the problem. Ultimately, if we're talking about the difference between one and, you know, zero and one, then you're talking about maybe a half hour if you get like a three times standard uh, block time to do that. So again, like what we've done with the vending machine systems we've created is as soon as we detect a payment, we tell the user to, to go away. We have their email address and we can keep them updated via that. So they have a confirmation and they know their part is done pretty much instantly. It's the same as your confirmation. But we don't actually dispense value until we have one or two confirmations, depending on the value that is kind of being transacted there. And again, it's, it's more about communication. So I agree with you. In a retail environment, in the physical space, you don't want people hanging around for a half hour. And you can't just hand them the product and have them walk away if it's right. so trivial to do double spend. So this creates a conundrum. Now, qu quite honestly, I've, I've never considered Bitcoin ready for brick and mortar retail right. for a number of reasons, including there isn't the geographical density of users right. and merchants to actually make it useful for anyone other than a marketing gimmick. But, you know, this throws a, a, a socket wrench in it. But here's the thing. This is not just here's a problem. There's also specific approaches to solving this problem. And I think there are a number of solutions that have uh, emerged in the last few years that can improve this. One of the things that, that helps is fixes to transaction malleability. Mm -hmm. Because one of the easiest ways to, to do a, a double spend is to create another transaction with a different ID that spends the same inputs, which is very, very hard to detect. Otherwise, you can detect double spends. But if it's got a different transaction ID, it's a bit harder to detect double spends. So there are ways to look at how far a transaction has propagated, whether there's a competing transaction for the same inputs. And for example, if we did get segregated witness and had uh, the transaction malleability problem solved, then you would be able to detect double spends very easily because you would see a competing transaction with the exact same transaction ID. So the more aware, really, that merchants or service providers become of what's going on in the blockchain and the ability to say, okay, there's you know, a competing transaction out there, then you can apply these sort of protections without necessarily having them, to, uh, them apply to every transaction and slow down everything. Question mark. <laughs> no, I just realized that, uh, in, in fact, uh, many double spends wouldn't involve uh, the same transaction ID, so I was wrong about that. But So backtracking a tiny bit, I mean, there, there are a lot of different things that can be fixed here, and, and detecting double spends in the network is a big part of this. But, you know, it's always been the case, and people have been saying this for years, when you accept zero confirmation transactions, you take a risk. And what Peter Todd is trying to say here is that risk is greater than you think because the effort to compromise or exploit this is much lower than you think. Indeed, in this particular circumstance, it looks like this was not done using a transaction ID or malleability. It was done just by broadcasting a competing transaction that had a higher fee being paid on it. To a different output. To a different output, yeah, to a different therefore, recipient. With therefore a completely different uh, transaction ID. So then... Awareness seems like it's a thing. You could then tell, you could uh, monitor the address that you know has broadcast the transaction that you're waiting to see if it's legitimate or not. And you could see if they've broadcast any other transactions. And if they haven't broadcast any other transactions, then there's really no concern about uh, any sort of double spend. But they have 10 minutes to do that in. Mm, the only reliable way to test for this is to look at the UTXO, the unspent transaction output that you are consuming in this payment, the inputs effectively of this payment, and look at those and make sure those are not being spent by a competing transaction. But again, yeah, as Stephanie said, if miners are accepting higher fee replacement transactions in their default policy, and Peter Todd has been 
you know, ringing the alarm bell and, and saying that effectively this has been default policy. In fact, he helped make it default policy in some miners. The end result is that it can be any time in the next 10 minutes that the competing transaction with slightly higher fee is transmitted. This is a recognition of the market dynamics. Why would a miner care about your zero confirmation transaction if they can take a valid transaction with a slightly higher fee and make profit from it? Another potential solution to this, or not necessarily a solution, but um, another attempt to tackle this problem actually came in the form of Bitcoin XT, uh, where one of the kind of not much talked about features was the ability for it to rebroadcast double spend transactions or transactions that look like double spend, which is a feature that has not historically been in Bitcoin. And the, the rationale behind it not being in Bitcoin, Andreas, can you remind us of that? The rationale behind not being in Bitcoin is that relaying double spends helps them propagate. And Bitcoin XT was actually created to solve two problems. One of them was relay of UTXO, and the other one was the API for UTXO. But the bottom line is the approach of XT is saying, well, yeah, but if you don't relay them, you're not helping them. But at the same time, it's not that difficult to get it relayed by targeting many, many different nodes until you find one that's willing to, to relay it or you relay it directly to a miner. Whereas what it does, it also makes it impossible to see that this other transaction is being relayed. Whereas if as soon as a double spend hits the network, it propagates to all of the nodes that are relaying it, then the merchant gets to see it too. So it's not that hard to get it to miners. And it's better if you get it to everyone because that way the merchant gets it too and is aware that a double spend is occurring. That's the XT rationale. And the core rationale is it's better not to help it relay at all. You know, this entire move by Todd appears to be more of that, right? Is It's not that it's hard to double spend, it's that it's not officially supported. So if you use only officially supported, you know, core Bitcoin uh, technology, then you have to jump through hoops to do it. You have to create your own script. You have to find a script somebody else created. You can't use the stock setting. But for somebody who has any sort of complexity or, frankly, the desire to do this, it seems like that obscurity doesn't actually help too much. Although, who knows? I mean, maybe we would have a huge amount of double spends going on if you know people had, more, had tools more easily available and it wasn't a, a more of an enthusiast type of thing. Well, you know, the thing is the replace by fee and uh, double spend tools that um, Todd wrote for demonstration in both this case and also in a previous demonstration more than a year ago uh, have been available. You can download them on GitHub and use them to make your own double spend transactions. There's nothing magical about this. So actually, again, the barrier is much lower than most people think. So, I mean, it doesn't really feel like anything is going to change as a result of this and I'm trying to figure out what the value of this is. This has been a known problem for years. And it's just like, again, if you look at how Coinbase or any of these uh, players, but Coinbase specifically, just does their business, this is just a cost of doing business. They're happy to eat it that, you know, and, and it makes it solves their problem. So Peter is pointing out something here that they don't appear to have any sort of desire to fix. So it seems like the only reason why they would want to fix it is if there is like a huge rush or not necessarily a huge rush, but if, if it, it substantially increases. Yeah, exactly. Right, which he's drawing attention to it and it could make it a problem, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's interesting to just, I mean, like, I, I wonder what he's trying to accomplish here. Yeah, a lot of other people wondered that too. <laughs> a lot of people wondered that, but I think it's also to bring awareness among developers about, you know, the really significant challenges that exist with zero confirmation transactions. And that's not going to stop uh, the merchants who have the right risk balance from 
building systems that accept them, but it may spur on the development of other ways of dealing with zero confirmation. Uh, for example, maybe payment channels might be a good way to do it, or Lightning Network might be a good way to do it. Who knows? We'll see. Today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin is brought to you by MindToMatter.org, which is the name under which I release my music. Longtime listeners will be familiar with the concept of token-controlled access, which allows a website or app to look at your Bitcoin address and then, based on its contents, give you permissions, powers, or perks that are not accessible without it. As of early this month, the first non-prototype version of token-controlled access, or TCA, is now formally implemented into the tokenly content management system, which is the underlying infrastructure that powers Let's Talk Bitcoin.com. Once again, fulfilling my role as the most earliest of early adopters, I've jumped in headfirst and created a few tokens to power my work on Mind to Matter. If you have an MTM producer token, when you visit the Let's Talk Bitcoin.com front page, you'll find my new, unreleased songs mixed in with the news stories. Clicking on any, you'll be taken to the Mind to Matter blog, where you'll be able to listen and download them at no additional cost before they go on sale. The song we're listening to right now is a song that'll probably wind up being called Skipping Stones, which was released to producers yesterday on the blog, and will wind up being publicly released on my next EP. There are three other tokens that make up this ecosystem. MTM Song and MTM Album, which are redeemable for a DRM-free download of any released song or album for me, and which may be purchased in bulk to receive up to a 50% discount over retail price. And finally, there's the MTM Collector token, which has two purposes. First, it gives you unfettered access to the full Mind to Matter streaming library indefinitely, and secondly, it can be redeemed for a one-time DRM-free download of the entire Mind to Matter song library. An interesting experiment here is that the price of the collector token is gonna go up every month based on how many new songs I've released. So the low price now of $15 will get you a lot more bang for your buck if you use it as an access token for now and then redeem it for the collection in a few months or whenever. To learn more about the Mind to Matter project, to buy DRM free MP3s of my music and to use my token vending machines in order to do any of the things I just mentioned, visit mindtomatter.org. And as this is new, feel free to email me at adam at letstalkbitcoin.com with any questions or issues. Before we get back to the show, there's one more thing I could really use some help on. Since nearly the beginning, Let's Talk Bitcoin has had a YouTube channel that over the years accumulated hundreds of hours of video converted from audio that we released and powered largely by volunteers who managed the channel. This channel eventually became home to every other show on the network and even many tokenly videos and tutorials were released through it. It was a primary way for new people from outside the Bitcoin community to find us when they were interested in Bitcoin. In December, we noticed that the entire channel and every video on it had been removed from the internet, and the account seemingly deleted. And after picking through the pieces, we discovered that what looks like three episodes of other shows on the network were flagged for using licensed music, which led to the removal of literally everything. We've been in contact with TuneCore, who handles music violations for YouTube in these matters, 
and they seem almost as confused as we are. It seems impossible to reach YouTube or Google directly on the matter, and there's no way that we've found to even file an appeal. If you have any guidance or connections that could help us get back at least the content from the channel, if not the channel itself with its followers, I'd be hugely in your debt. As usual, I can be reached at adam at letstalkbitcoin.com, and thanks in advance. So that's it. Back to the conversation. So moving on to our second topic today, let's actually talk about Bitcoin XT and some of the other, just like what's happened since we last spoke about it, which I guess was about five months ago at this point. It's been a while. Wow, was it that long ago? I think yeah. I think so. I could be wrong. Um, it's it's January. Uh, this was the time when if it was going to happen, this was you know this was the window when it could happen, and it can it could continue to happen. You know if if the preconditions are fulfilled, which is seventy five percent of the miners on the Bitcoin network issuing blocks or 75% of the last, I believe, a thousand blocks would have to vote for this. And I think right now it's closer to about 10%. It's uh, definitely has not gotten there. As I understand it, it never really got above 10%. Is that right? Really? It yeah. seemed like for a while there, it was, uh, it was something that was going on, but uh, you, you could indeed be right. It felt like when XT was getting talked about extensively and when both Mike and Gavin were uh, pushing for it, that it was something that was either going to happen or the problem was going to get fixed another way that would essentially obviate the need to do this change. You know, we talked about segregated witness last week, and it feels like that is, you know, in part addressing this. Is scalability being addressed, though, I guess is kind of the bigger question. And was it worth this, uh, you know, the XT experiment, regardless of whether it gets implemented, was it worth it to kind of go through that as a community? What did we gain? What did we lose? Where are we now? Yeah, that's a great question, because obviously there was a lot of division among the community over XT and what it was going to mean. Yeah, I think a lot of people are left with unresolved feelings and bitterness about it. Uh, XT didn't, hasn't succeeded. Uh, I guess it could still, but it seems unlikely given that it just hasn't gained the traction or momentum and there's not really that much of an active push for it. I disagree. I mean, here, here's what's really, what, what really has happened here is that Bitcoin XT could not be turned on the the block increase could not be turned on until january 16th right so uh, casting your vote in the primaries for bitcoin xt if you like isn't that meaningful but as of january uh i think it's january 16th i'm not entirely sure but which is two days uh, from this recording yes exactly as of that date you're going to see the possibility of this activating and the whole point of having Bitcoin XT is that if we see no progress in other scaling solutions and things reach a point where capacity becomes a real problem, Bitcoin XT is sitting there, it's loaded, it's ready, and all the miners have to do is pull the trigger. Um, and it will happen. It will happen with a unplanned, un, <laughs> un supported hard fork, which is what the core developers think is the worst possible scenario. Uh, and But it will happen to also solve the scaling problem uh, very quickly and very effectively, which is what Bitcoin XT supporters say. So it's like in theater where they say, if you see a loaded gun on the mantelpiece in, in scene one, expect it to go off before the third act. So this was the grace period, really. But it's still sitting there, right? It's sitting there, but beside it is like a candlestick and a lead pipe as well, because there's other options now, right? Like we just talked about segregated witness, which would address, although it's not mainly meant to address the 
the scalability question, it, it would do something to help. And there's also some other proposals floating around like Bitcoin Unlimited and Bitcoin Classic. So what we're seeing is diversity now. Diversity, yeah. Right. And arguably, and this is the kind of thorn in the side of, of the core developers who, who hate the situation, it, arguably this wouldn't have happened. We wouldn't have had movement in terms of scaling to scaling conferences and active engagement on this question unless Gavin had basically put a loaded gun on the mantelpiece. After two years of complete inaction on this topic and circular discussions, he put the loaded gun on the mantelpiece, and in the run-up to the date of activation, suddenly things started happening, and now we have all of these proposals and all of these alternatives to scaling. So Core has still not agreed to do a block size limit increase, but... You know, at the same time, if things come to a head because the capacity issues become extreme, you know, it's still there on the mantelpiece and someone may pick it up and pull the trigger. To the question of Bitcoin XT has gone nowhere, well, Bitcoin XT has achieved exactly what it needed to achieve, which was to have a discussion and a debate about scaling that's serious and where the sides are actually making compromises and trying to find solutions. That discussion is now had and is continuing and provide an escape valve, an exit valve for pressure and capacity if the miners decide to exert their voting rights in such a way, which really also removes power from core developers. So this is really about credible competition. The threat is just as effective as the application, so long as the application is something that could actually happen. If the application, if it's like, you know, this, this fantasy that's never going to happen, like, for example, uh, if XT had been proposed by people who didn't have the credibility of Gavin and Mike, which I would argue, because of their support for that, has been really hurt. They've they're now they've now become pariahs in certain parts of the community who think that XT. So like that was the part that was really interesting to me is that by choosing to do this, they were putting their reputations on the line. And whether they've won or lost in terms of reputation, they have they have moved the conversation. Oh, everybody's reputation is tarnished in this because uh, you know separate from the facts of the conversation and who is right or who is less right, people have been trampling all over the process, all over respect for the work done by everybody else in this space, and have essentially been pouring fuel onto the fire and poisoning the, the debate. So everyone's reputation has taken a hit in this particular debate, not because of the ends, but because in believing every, everyone who believes they are correct and sees these ends as very important, have used some pretty nasty means to get them. And when you use nasty means to achieve ends, you tarnish the ends too. So in addition to the Bitcoin Core and Bitcoin XT, it was mentioned before that there's Bitcoin Unlimited. And is Bitcoin Classic different from Bitcoin Core? Both Bitcoin Unlimited, well, actually all three, Bitcoin XT, Bitcoin Unlimited, and Bitcoin Classic are all forks from Bitcoin Core. So they're all slight modifications of how they deal with the consensus rule policy. Uh, Bitcoin Unlimited essentially is a rolling block size limit increase that takes place as a rolling vote. So the limit becomes completely dynamic. It is no longer limited. And Bitcoin Classic, I haven't studied in, in detail yet, but it seems yet another proposal for how to do this. And uh, Gavin Ashley published uh, a memo two days ago saying, Listen, we're seeing now the diversification in the software base that the we've seen in places like Linux, etc. Despite the fact that some people think they should only be one software client, there are now four. 
five, six, maybe. And maybe these differentiate, maybe Bitcoin Core is the one that's for reference, Bitcoin Unlimited is the one that the miners end up running, or XT or Classic, users end up running this, merchants end up running something else. And then you have emergent consensus, which is essentially whichever is winning at the time in the vote. So how would something like that work? That sounds like kind of a nightmare scenario for Bitcoin, where you have different types. I mean, because they have differences at the protocol level, the tokens, I mean, some of the transactions wouldn't be compatible with each other, right? So isn't that kind of the worst case scenario that was talked about when XT was introduced? If you had unresolved contentious hard forks, yes, the, that's exactly the nightmare scenario. But you know, one of the things to consider in this argument is that the fact that these alternatives, which are much more uh, drastic, exist forces core to moderate their power and to moderate their authority and take into consideration the concerns of people who have, you know, in many cases been excluded from this conversation, because if they push that position too hard and in an uncompromising way, they feed the fork intention. But as you've seen now, by introducing things like segregated witness, putting a roadmap together, suggesting that a fork, a hard fork will probably come later to something like the 248 proposal, what they've done is they've deflated a lot of the motivation behind XT, and so they've been pushed into a position of compromise, and, and this pressure will continue to exist. You know, the thing I notice when reading about all these different uh, new proposals, Bitcoin Unlimited and Classic, they seem to be really emphasizing, I guess, the importance of consensus, which is like a classic feature of Bitcoin and democratic decision making, I guess, if you will by nodes voting for things and nodes having to come on board to accept various features and get these changes implemented. Maybe that's one thing to come out of the whole debate about XT, because there were a lot of people who felt like it was just top down. Well, part of the problem here is that we have one voting mechanism in Bitcoin, and that voting mechanism gives all the power to the mining farms. So whoever has the hash power wins the vote. That's, that's a, it's as simple as that. At the moment, the only participants in the Bitcoin network who get to vote in practical terms under the consensus algorithms are those who can deliver proof of work. So what you're running on your node means nothing. What matters is what's being recorded in the blocks that are being mined, which reflects the proof of work behind them. And that vote is the only one that matters in terms of voting with the consensus algorithm. The second big kind of uh, concentration of power is the development group around Bitcoin Core, because software is it's a bit like lettuce. Buying it is not the problem. The problem is consuming it before it rots and maintaining it, right? So creating a fork of Bitcoin Core, yeah, sure, I can create uh, you know, Bitcoin Andreas right now by forking Bitcoin Core, changing five parameters. In fact, most altcoins are created that way. And I've got you know, Bitcoin Andreas, but the question to anyone considering whether they should run that is, well, what happens with maintenance and updates and security patches, vulnerabilities, soft forks, uh, continuous improvement, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. And the thing Bitcoin Core has behind it is a very large team of, of developers that are doing work. The, and the reason why Bitcoin XT is the most credible is because it has at least you know, two developers who are willing to put maintenance work to actually maintain that thing. Because you release it, great, and it's obsolete two days later because it, it hasn't kept up with the network consensus rules or the features that people want, or did you 
merge in check lock time verify or is that not supported yet what about the new multi-sig feature can you support sidechains blah 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 it's a moving target and so the core development team is the big second set of power in bitcoin because they maintain code not because they write it in the first place or release it but because they maintain code and anybody running code needs code that's well maintained yeah but isn't that kind of a catch-22 because in order to commit to maintaining code for the long term, you kind of need, if you're a developer, you kind of need to see that people are going to use it. You know, people need to come on board with it in the first place, and then maybe you'll consider going forward and maintaining it. But then again, people want to come on board with it unless they think you're going to maintain it. So I can see how that would be a little tricky. The core developers have basically said that they don't want to work on anything other than core as they've been building it to this point. So I think that's kind of the, I have a quote here from uh, core developer BTC Drac, who says uh, in a recent Coindesk article, the XT client was rejected by miners and major businesses because of the lack of support, manpower, and expertise to maintain and develop their software. So I mean, like that, that pretty much is, you know, you could, you could use this, but we're not going to move our efforts over to it. We're going to keep developing core because that's what, that's what we want to develop is how I take that. And that is a fairly large threat given how much resource goes into Bitcoin Core. And the predominance of uh, Blockstream as an employer also seems like it has a lot to do with the unity in developers to support Core as the vision rather than any of the other alternatives that might come along regardless of if they're popular or not. Ironically, one of the leading solutions to a problem that we've been dealing with in Bitcoin development for the last four years and that we have discussed on this program many, many times, which is how do you get core developers paid so that they can focus their development efforts? And Blockstream is a solution to that because it's now paying many, many core developers with the money that they have raised and has actually accelerated development effort and focus in development. And through this debate have now been painted as a villain. And this is what rankles me most is because agree or disagree with Blockstream, they are an incredible source of resource for Bitcoin core development, and they are paying core developers. Agree or disagree with Gavin Andreessen, the work that he has done since the beginning is the reason why we're here, and that deserves enormous respect, including, and that applies to everybody else who has disagreed with core and Blockstream on this. And it applies to Mike Kern for his development of Bitcoin J and SPV wallets, and which are used by many, many of the SPV wallets out there, and most of the mobile wallets wouldn't exist without Mike Kern. And yet in all of this discussion, what's happened is that people who have contributed enormously are being treated as villains, their opinion as if it doesn't matter, their vote as if it doesn't count. And you have this bitter kind of petty infighting, which is only delaying and distracting everybody. But it's a necessary debate. We need the debate. I just wish it was less uh, poisonous. I was going to say, like, how do you do it any other way? It's a decentralized system. I mean, if you look at what people push back against, oftentimes it is these points of centralization. And centralized solutions, I mean, like, I'm talking about Blockstream in this particular circumstance. They are a centralized company. They pay people. They have, a, you know, a roadmap of things that they want to accomplish as a company. And there are things that need to happen in Bitcoin in order to do that. That does effectively mean that anybody who's employed by Blockstream is effectively part of this centralized system that then is pushing forward that agenda. And we can argue whether or not the agenda is good or bad. And frankly, I don't really have an opinion. I think that the fact that it's being pushed forward is valuable in and of itself. But it seems clear that the way that things are developing, 
I mean, like, it's kind of a chicken egg, right? It's like, did all the developers, uh, did the core developers employed by Blockstream want to do this anyways? Uh, and, you know, maybe that's a reason why they were a good fit for the Blockstream team. Or does being on the Blockstream team mean that they have incentives, you know, where they now want to push these other times? Again, like, I'm, I'm not against Blockstream. I'm just saying that, yes, it is a solution to the problem of people not getting paid. But it's a solution that comes along with lots of problems all to its own. And the thing about being a Bitcoin developer is that it's all reputational. It's all like the work that you've done is fine, but people don't really understand that. Most people don't really even know what you've done. And so it really is more about how you portray yourself or how you're portrayed by others. And so when these bitter fights come around where there really are two good solutions or many good solutions or solutions that are equally bad, you know, we need to solve the problem. There are solutions that are equally bad there isn't really a right answer. And so this is why, you know, I guess over a year ago at this point, I started thinking, well, does this just mean that Bitcoin eventually winds up being more than one Bitcoin? Because everybody's right. They all have reasons why they believe the things that they believe, and they're all valid reasons. Nobody's trying to, you know, trying to get one over on the entire network. It's just that there are different things that Bitcoin could be, and different people want different things. I think, you know, you can't really assume that people who work for Blockstream toe the Blockstream line. That doesn't apply in any software organization, but especially in Bitcoin, where you're hurting libertarians. The idea that somehow these people with their giant personalities, very strong opinions, and enormous technical expertise would simply toe the line. Um, no, I think these opinions are honestly felt and well-meaning. And I, you have to assume good faith. And, and the same applies to, to Gavin and Mike. I assume good faith. Everybody here who has expressed an opinion is trying to make Bitcoin better. They just disagree on the how. And I wish people would pay more attention to the process, respect the opinions of, of the minority position a bit more when they're in the majority because it will come around. Treat the process with more respect because the process determines the, the tone of the debate. And if in the, in the pursuit of being right, you trample all over the process, then you poison the debate. So, I mean, that's, that's the real issue here. And we're going to see some maturity develop over time. But, you know, it's, it's natural. Have you ever been to a Bitcoin meetup and tried to agree on what pizza to order or where to go for drinks afterwards? It's, uh, you know, herding cats is easy compared to herding libertarians. Okay, so I totally agree with you on all of that. Can we both agree that there's more than one solution that will work to solve these various problems? And so that creates in large part, this problem where people can, multiple parties can be right and still uh, oppositionally, you know, oriented to each other. Right. I mean, even more so, we're talking about, I don't think that uh, Bitcoin in any of these outcomes doesn't survive. I think that the forces holding Bitcoin together and pushing for its survival are much stronger than any of the forces pulling it apart. So in the end, these differences of opinion I'm very optimistic, will resolve themselves because by creating these kinds of balances of power, these checks and balances, it creates all kinds of incentives for people to be more compromising. I have a quote here from Mike Hearn that was pretty recent that I'm wondering if you can disagree with. Bitcoin can't be credibly described any longer as a decentralized system in how it operates and in how much influence users and merchants have. It is indistinguishable from any other proprietary payment network. I disagree with that. I, I disagree with that strongly. Uh, I think decentralized is not a Boolean value. Decentralized is a scale. And in fact, Bitcoin is more decentralized than anything else out there. 
except perhaps for a few of the altcoins that don't have the network effect and have their own problems. But no, it's, it's very much distinguishable from all of the other things out there. And this debate is actually demonstrating it. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah, I would say the, the most important aspect here really is competition, right? You know, you look at a Visa, Visa is never going to allow Visa to compete with Visa, right? There's not going to be a breakaway insurgent group in there that's going to potentially be able to co-opt the, the entire Visa network because they're doing a, a better job. Bitcoin fundamentally, I think that's what the XT thing has proven is that competition, it doesn't need to succeed. It just needs to be there. And we've seen that with the banking system. I mean, while we've been doing this show, the time it takes to receive a bank wire has gone down from like five days to, to, to one or two at this point. And that didn't happen in a vacuum. Once you introduce the concept of competition, it makes the, the, the inferior option look bad. And then you have the choice of either saying, all right, well, we don't care that we look bad, or all right, I guess these awkward questions continue to pile up. Maybe we should you know, improve our situation so that we're, we're comparable. And I think that's one of the reasons, again, why Bitcoin continues to be not that compelling of an argument to normal users in the US financial system or in uh, the rest of the developed world that has reasonably stable currencies, because the banks have upped their game since virtual currency started becoming a thing. Well, the other thing is this concept of illusory power. So, it, you know, I think people overestimate the power that core developers have because they have this illusory power to control the software of Bitcoin unless that control starts stepping on the profitability of miners and other economic interests in the Bitcoin space. And in this capacity debate, it has not stepped on their toes because if it does step on their toes, you will see that illusory power melt away in a millisecond as they switch to the thing that supports their economic interests. And then you can still say and stay and maintain core, but if core is not the one that people are running, then most of the developers will move to the one that people are running because at the end of the day, if you're a developer, you're only worth your development if somebody's running your code. So um, it becomes abandonware. So this is power the core has is in itself illusory. And the same thing applies vice versa, right? The miners have enormous power unless they go against the majority of economic interests of users, merchants, exchanges, etc. There is a balance here. And, and while things may seem all powerful from one perspective, it's only if that power tries to exercise control over something and step on somebody's toes and then it melts away. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content for today's show was provided by Andreas, Stephanie, and Adam. This episode was edited by Adam B. Levine and featured music from Jared Rubens and mindtomatter.org. If you have any questions or comments, email adam at letstalkbitcoin.com. Have a good one. <laughs>